What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook, and this is episode 90, The Environmental Impact of Desflurane. I'm joined by Jake Bonema, who created the content for this episode as part of his doctorate in anesthesia at North Shore University Health System. Jake is conducting a study associated with this podcast, and we're asking for your participation. This podcast is coming out in early October of 2022, and the data collection will run for the next several weeks. Jake and I are asking for you to pause the podcast right now and take a quick pre-survey that you can find in the show notes to this episode. It will only take a couple minutes to complete, then come back and get the scoop by listening to the show. At the end of the podcast, you'll have the chance to click the same link in the show notes to complete a post-survey on the content you heard in the show. Now, here's two reasons you should do these super quick surveys. The most important is that it will help you learn the content better and make this show stick in your incredibly powerful brain. By testing your knowledge up front, then listening to the content, then retesting to see what you picked up in the show, you'll increase your ability to recall this information so you sound really smart when talking about it with your colleagues and students at work. And the second reason is that by completing the survey, you can feel good about yourself because you're contributing to science. The more people who complete the pre and post surveys, the better data Jake will have. And that makes you and Jake happy and me. Everyone will be happy if you pause the podcast right now and hit the pre and post surveys. Everyone's happy and we will be saving the planet. It's a win, win, win. All right. With that, let's get to the show. All right. Well, hey, Jake, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm stoked to speak with you. Thanks for having me, John. It's an honor to be here, and I'm excited to share a little bit about my DNP project with you today. So uh, kick us off. Uh, tell us a little bit about the background and your goals for this project. Sure. So I'm doing a podcast as a part of my DNP project called Podcasting as an Education Modality on the Environmental Effect of Desflurane. And the goal of my project is to evaluate the effectiveness of podcasts on increasing anesthesia providers' knowledge of the environmental impact of desflurane, in addition to assessing their attitudes, practice habits, and knowledge related to desflurane use. So I'm asking for nurse anesthetists, SRNAs, physician anesthesiologists, and anesthesia residents to participate. And the participation in this study is completely voluntary. And my information sheet, which will be attached, is has a full explanation of the voluntary nature of this project. If you're interested in participating, there is a link included in the show notes on the Anesthesia Guidebook website to complete the pre and post surveys for my study. And please complete the pre-survey before listening to this podcast and returning to this episode. Once you've listened to the podcast episode in its entirety, you can navigate back to the show notes to click the link to fill out the post-survey. The study should take approximately 40 minutes of your time to complete in total. Please feel free to share this podcast with your colleagues and classmates who meet the criteria and who may be interested in participating in the research study or have a general interest in the environmental impact of volatile anesthetics. Nice. That's awesome, Jake. So what do you hope that listeners are going to take away from the podcast? Well, I got the idea of doing a podcast for my DNP project because I personally think that podcasts are a sort of novel approach to modern education, and research has already shown them to be effective in helping people learn. Um, so my project kind of aims to evaluate their effectiveness when introducing new information to anesthesia providers specifically. I know for myself and a lot of my classmates, podcasts uh, have been a great way to supplement our learning on a topic. 
And a lot of people in my cohort listen to podcasts as we're commuting back and forth from clinical sites or other times that we can't use as much of our attention, such as when reading a textbook or a YouTube video. And we can use that time to learn about a new topic or reinforce something that we might be experiencing in rotation. So I wanted to examine what kinds of topics might be the most appropriate for podcasts and also if there was any difference in the utilization of podcasts between anesthesia providers like CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists and anesthesia learners like SRNAs and resident physicians. So I hope that the listeners of this podcast uh, will come away with an understanding of the foundational elements of global warming and healthcare's contribution to global warming an understanding of the environmental impact of volatile anesthetics with specific emphasis on desflurane, and we'll be able to consider the risks and benefits of using desflurane with the added aspect of environmental impact. Yeah, that's awesome, Jake. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I think this is something that's really important for anesthesia providers to understand, and you're going to get into a little bit more of the background in, in terms of the environmental impact of volatile anesthetics and just, you know, OR operations in general. But can you tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, what got you interested in, in choosing this as your DMP project and then how that evolved into what it is today, which is the podcast? Sure. I initially thought about doing a project on the impact of desflurane because I'm very interested in environmentalism and sustainability. And when I learned about how significant the environmental impact of the gases that we use in anesthesia are, I found myself wondering why people would choose to use one over another. And it seems like from what I've observed thus far in clinical, some providers prefer to use desflurane over other agents to save time during emergence. When I would ask them if they use it, why they use it, I didn't really get a very substantial answer a lot of the time. And I, so I began to weigh those things in my mind and compare the environmental impact of desflurane versus the potential benefits that clinical providers seem to uh, use it for, such as a quick emergence, and look to the current research to see what was published on this topic. And so what did you come across in the literature? Give us a little bit of rundown on the environmental impact of desflurane. Well, first off, it's already well known that the volatile anesthetics that we use contribute to global warming. We use them, obviously, to induce and maintain anesthesia during surgery, but they undergo very little in vivo metabolism, and our patients breathe them off into the circuit where they're just collected by the scavenger system and vented out into the atmosphere. And the research clearly shows that the greenhouse gas emissions produced you know, over, all around the world, but specifically within the healthcare system, are major contributors to warming climate. And the healthcare industry is, as I said, one of the chief offenders with estimates between 5 and 10% of the total global greenhouse gas emissions. So the provision of anesthesia is using gases that contribute to this problem, and experts have already agreed that without you know, a drastic and coordinated change, there's going to be a lot of adverse effects that will occur that affect the health of current and future populations. Things like extreme weather, thermal stress, undernutrition, air pollution, migration, and vector-borne diseases, among other things. Up to 10% of the greenhouse gas emissions are generated by the healthcare industry, and over half of the waste generated is created in the operating room itself with provision of anesthesia being responsible for about 5% of the total greenhouse gas contributions. So let me just ask you a question on that real quick. I was, that's shocking. I mean, to be honest, you know, that 
10% of greenhouse gas emissions globally are generated by healthcare. Over half of that's coming from waste out of the OR. This 5% of total greenhouse gas contributions from anesthesia, is that is that 5% of total global greenhouse gases? So that's 5% of the healthcare industry's contribution to that, which is roughly 5 to 10%. So okay. that 5 Okay. That 5 to 10% that makes up the total industrial greenhouse gas contribution is coming from the healthcare industry for which anesthesia is responsible for 5% of that total. Okay. So it it does the ma- it slices the math down lower of course but still pretty substantial for what team anesthesia is responsible for in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, even though it's of 5%, it's something that's only being contributed to by anesthesia providers. And if we can even reduce that by a couple percent, that will make up a huge portion of the overall greenhouse gas emissions throughout the, you know, industrial complex. And as a lot of the research shows, there needs to be a drastic and coordinated change in order to reduce the amount of emissions in order to stop the global temperature from rising even more. Yeah, absolutely. So what else have you found in the literature in terms of the volatile anesthetics impact on greenhouse gases? So we know that the gases are just vented out into the atmosphere and there they trap heat within the atmosphere and contribute to the depletion of the ozone layer, which reflects ultraviolet energy away from the earth via the sun's radiation. So this leads to a dual warming effect on the planet. However, the specialty of anesthesia has been exempted from regulations introduced to curb emissions because the United Nations excluded anesthetic gases from these regulations due to their necessity. So as a result, uh, the significance of these agents' environmental effects has kind of gone by the wayside in terms of the anesthesia providers who are utilizing them. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think that's important for anesthesia providers to understand is that, you know, because of the exemptions from governing bodies, it can kind of make people think like, well, it must not be that big of a deal. It must be okay and safe. And, you know, there's a critical medication list from the World Health Organization, and clearly anesthesia gases are part of that. I don't think that you're recommending that we stop using volatile anesthetics in general, uh, which is which is why your project focuses specifically on desflurane for its uniquely powerful contributions or negative contributions to greenhouse gas emissions. But it's something that we need to take a look at. And it seems like it's going to be provider driven right now, which is why, again, I'm so interested in having this podcast with you because it's it really comes down to getting the message out to individual providers about the choices that they make in the operating room. Of course. You know, the the point of my project was not to tell anybody how to practice or which gases to use, but rather to educate people on the differences between these gases and in hopes that, you know, we can have an honest discussion about different techniques that we can use to reduce our gas consumption and use overall. You know, things like maybe pursuing Tiva for a case or using a different gas, learning how to turn it off sooner so that you don't have a delayed wake up. And that's kind of where I hoped this podcast, the kind of discussion that I hope this podcast would stimulate. Yeah, that's excellent. So you've got some other background information in terms of what you've read in the literature and how to frame this topic out for us. So what else do you want to share with us? Sure. So I 
wanted to have a discussion about the difference in the warming potential between the gases that we use and break that down into a couple of key points. So firstly, when we're talking about climate crisis and greenhouse gas emissions, our baseline is established in comparison to an equivalent volume of carbon dioxide. So when we look at the warming potential of our anesthesia gases, we can compare it to carbon dioxide to come up with an index to illustrate how much it warms the environment comparatively. So this number has been called the global warming potential or the GWP. So the GWP combines the radiative and the atmospheric properties of gas. The radiative property of a gas is the ability to absorb energy and the atmospheric property of a gas is how long it stays in the environment. So when we use these as an indexed number, which is the GWP, we can compare their impact to an equivalent volume of carbon dioxide. So let's just say CO2 has a GWP of, of one. For our most commonly used anesthetic gases, the GWP for sevoflurane is 130, isofluorine is 510, and desfluorine is 2,540. So what that means is sevoflurane has 130 times the warming power of carbon dioxide, which as you I'm sure can tell is significant. And when we look at desfluorane, it has 2,540 times the warming power of an equivalent volume of carbon dioxide. So in other words, one liter of desfluorane gas that ends up in the environment traps the same amount of heat within the atmosphere as 2,540 liters of carbon dioxide. So that, you know, we can see that all volatile agents are much worse for the environment than carbon dioxide is at baseline, but desfluorine is by far the worst. Isofluorine is somewhere in the middle and sevoflurane is uh, the least offensive in terms of global warming. Yeah. And just to recap on those numbers, so you're seeing the, the GWP or the, the global warming potential. So sevoflurane is 130. If CO2 is one, sevoflurane is 130. ISO's way worse than that, like by a mul- like several multiples, it isofluorine is 510 and desfluorine is over five times worse than that at 2,540 GWP, which is, which is insane. Desfluorine is way worse. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about, uh, I think one of the other interesting things for anesthesia providers to consider is, you know, this GWP is the radiative properties, how much energy they're able to absorb or heat they're able to hang on to, and then how long they last. So tell us about, you know, how long do these gases float around in the atmosphere? Because I think, I think it's interesting, you know, we have a scavenger system on our anesthesia machines. It sucks the volatile agents out of the OR, and then it just pipes it out of the roof of the hospital. So how long are these things floating around in the atmosphere? Sure. Like you said, the GWP is the combination of the radiative and the atmospheric properties, which is the lifetime of the gas in the atmosphere. So desfluorane remains in the atmosphere for the longest period of time out of all of our volatile anesthetics. And the sources give a fairly wide range uh, of the lifetime of these gases, but desfluorane lasts about an average of 14 years before breaking down, which is much longer than sevoflurane and isofluorane which only last about a year to a few years, respectively. Again, not ideal, but there is a clear environmental benefit here to SIVO and ISO over desfluorine. And then another thing to remember is that um, these volatile agents uh, sometimes contain chlorine or bromine atoms that also contribute to the degradation of the ozone layer, which is the Earth's protective uh, part of the atmosphere that reflects ultraviolet energy 
back away from the sun's radiation. And that again leads to a dual warming effect on the planet. However, desflurane does not contain either of these atoms. So it does not actually contribute to the degradation of the ozone layer, but isoflurane does. What about sevoflurane? Sevoflurane does not. Sevoflurane does not directly degrade the ozone layer. That's correct. Nor does desflurane, but isoflurane does. That's correct. Oh, man, that's a hit on isoflurane. I, <laughs> I work with some CRNAs that they call it dollar general anesthesia. They're looking for the cheapest way to deliver their <laughs> anesthetic. And ISO is their go-to gas because it's the cheapest. But there's the hit on isoflurane is that it directly contributes to degradation of the ozone layer. Yeah. And it's and it's five times as worse as sevoflurane in terms of its GWP. 510 to 130. That's significant. I know who I'm talking to after this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So these things are, you know, these are governed by international laws and agreements. Give us a little bit of background information on that. So what have you found in terms of volatile agents and how these things are actually governed? Sure. So a lot of the recent uh, international agreements that have been proposed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions per nation have excluded the anesthetic gases from these regulations due to their necessity, which is understandable. However, it appears that the significance of these agents' environmental impacts kind of gets lost in the mix as a result. Yeah, that's interesting. And again, I think it brings back the point that, you know, right now this is, you know, it's kind of one of those things that's left up to providers to decide on whether or not, you know, their decision-making in an operating room, you know, is shaped by how they've think about the environment and what the environmental impacts of their decisions are. So it's very interesting that this isn't, hasn't been more rigorously regulated from a national or international level. Yeah. Yeah. So Jake, I think one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, a lot of people who reach for desflurane, I think they're looking at desflurane as probably the most powerful agent in terms of decreasing emergence times in terms of using yeah. a volatile anesthetic. That's, that's one of the main benefits of using desflurane. So can you kind of frame that against maybe some of the detrimental aspects of desflurane or talk a little bit about desflurane? You know, why do people reach for it? What are some of the pros and cons around using desflurane in the OR? Sure. So like you said, we know that desflurane has a shorter emergence time than our other gases. That's because of its low blood gas solubility, and it's uh, relatively insoluble compared to our other volatile anesthetics. But apart from that, I just wanted to point out a couple of the detriments of desflurane apart from the environmental side effects. Desflurane uh, is known to cause tachycardia and sympathetic stimulation. So that kind of makes it less than ideal for anyone with existing cardiac disease. It also has irritant properties that can cause coughing and bronchospasm. And so that makes it a less than ideal agent for patients with any kind of reactive airway disease like asthma, et cetera. So care should always be taken for surgeries where coughing could cause adverse effects, such as cases where bleeding could occur with with excessive coughing or bucking or cases where ICP needs to be tightly controlled. So there are a fair number of clinical scenarios where desflurane is not the optimal gas to use. And another thing that I wanted to point out is that the MAC of desflurane, as we know, is 6% compared to 1% or 2% for our other gases. 
And the point that I wanted to make here is that it requires a lot more of the actual gas molecules of desflurane to induce and maintain anesthesia, which, as we've already discussed, is not metabolized by the body, but is instead just exhaled by the patient and then vented out into the atmosphere where it will accumulate. So combined with the lifetime and the significantly worse GWP, you can see how desflurane contributes to this environmental problem. And finally, we know that the vapor pressure of desflurane is also higher than our other agents. It's very close to atmospheric pressure at 660 torr. So because of this, we need our electronic vaporizers that heat it to two atmospheres in order to have a standard output. So this has implications for the use of desflurane at altitude, where you're going to need even higher concentrations to achieve the same MAC value that you would at sea level, meaning even more gas gets vented out to the atmosphere. And that same problem does not occur with the use of sevoflurane or isoflurane. Yeah, that's interesting. These are great points, you know, again, which just, I think, adds to the contextual framework around using desflurane and the environmental impacts. I think the the MAC values are important for people to understand, which is, again, why, you know, my Dollar General uh, CRNA buddies are looking at isoflurane because it's the most potent volatile anesthetic. You can use less of it. It has the lowest MAC value. Desflurane, you actually are using more of it. I, I think sometimes that's lost on people that when you're setting the percentage of the vaporizer, you know, to six percent to achieve a MAC value, that's more desflurane molecules that are circulating through the circuit and then out the scavenger system and out the top of the hospitals or surgical centers compared to using sevoflurane uh, or isoflurane. So not only is it like the worst, you also have to use more of it to get the same effect. These are some pretty substantial nails in the coffin. And then as you mentioned, like you also have to plug the vaporizer in and keep the vaporizer warm because of its vapor pressure. So you're actually spending more energy to even just have the vaporizer on. So uh, this is not looking good for desflurane, but uh, since we're not done yet, tell us about how expensive desflurane is. Right. So I was pretty um, interested to find out that desflurane is also much more expensive than our other volatile agents, to the point where some hospitals have already excluded desflurane from standard use for this exact reason. So I know that at my school, North Shore University Health System, desflurane isn't even used because of the cost difference. And I read also a study done by an anesthesiologist in the Pacific Northwest that compared the cost savings of removing desflurane from standard use in favor of sevoflurane, and they reported over half a million dollars in savings annually from this change alone. So in an age where the cost of healthcare is only skyrocketing, I think this is kind of a win-win scenario where you can reduce the environmental impact of the healthcare industry in addition to saving money. Yeah, this is interesting. You know, Jake, when I went to school, we had anesthesia machines that had all three vaporizers for all three volatile anesthetics on every machine. And it was literally just up to the provider's choice in the room, whether you turned on SIVO, ISO, or desflurane. And we played around with desflurane quite a bit in school. I would say it was, you know, I, I don't know if there was a statistical difference in what people were using amongst the three, but it was all provider-specific choice. And then where I'm currently working in, in Portland, Maine, we only have two vaporizers for desflurane in the entire system. And we run, you know, 57 operating sites on a daily basis uh, with only two vaporizers for desflurane and they're in the workroom. And we have had very interesting conversations just in the last 12 to 18 months about whether or not to just completely 
take it off the formulary and discontinue the use of desflurane, whether there's any educational value in it for our, our nurse anesthesia physician residents. So it's it's an interesting question. You know, I just even had a meeting with someone from our sustainability office, and they were specifically looking at volatile anesthetics and specifically desflurane. And I told them about your project. And, uh, you know, of course, the two of you have been in touch, and he's been very interested in, in what we're going to talk about today. So you know, to say the least, to sum all this up, I think that healthcare systems are looking at this from both an environmental impact as large health systems are actually putting resources into sustainability efforts and looking at metrics across their entire system from the vehicles they drive to the volatile anesthetics that they use. And obviously, we're also looking at cost savings. So this is an opportunity on both fronts that anesthesia providers can have a positive impact. Uh, what are some of the other takeaways that, that you've realized from looking into this project? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, most anesthesia textbooks list uh, the benefit of desflurane being its rapid offset, which we've talked about. That makes it, you know, favorable in obese patients who might otherwise become, quote unquote, SIVO sinks. Uh, and in fact, the poor environmental profile is rarely mentioned in anesthesia textbooks and anesthesia education, and even then only ever very briefly. So considering the side effect profile that we've already discussed, my question is how many of these obese patients, you know, that desflurane might be considered a optimal agent to use, how many of those patients are otherwise free of comorbidities like reactive airway disease, cardiac disease, vascular disease, where, you know, coughing and bucking needs to be minimized? Probably not many. And this already makes desflurane kind of a suboptimal choice over agents like SIBO or ISO. And additionally, the fact that some hospitals have already excluded desflurane from standard use suggests that there must be a way to plan emergence accordingly when using SIVO or ISO in these obese patient populations so that you don't have this really prolonged wake up. So in my own practice, I've decided to avoid desflurane in favor of learning ways to have a quick emergence using far less environmentally damaging gases. Yeah, that's a great point. I think what you just ended there with is that, you know, SRNAs and residents, I think, get really used to tailoring their anesthetic choices to the preferences of their preceptors. Like you get, you get good at doing anesthesia, however anybody else wants you to do it. So you realize that you can do anesthesia in a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, for the people who are still relying on desflurane for this rapid emergence, you know, the message is, is clear that you can accomplish the same goal with sevoflurane and isoflurane by learning how to use those agents differently. And, and obviously incorporating, you know, a multimodal approach to not just sedation, but analgesia as well in the operating room. So, so there, there are ways around desflurane, I think is what we're agreeing to say. Uh, but for the critics out there who still are hanging tightly onto their bottles of desflurane and their warm vaporizers of desflurane, what would you say to them? Well, as I said before, the intention of this podcast isn't to tell people how to practice. Your clinical judgment and safe patient care are still the first and foremost decisions that we have to make as anesthesia providers. What I want to encourage people to think about, though, by way of this podcast is considering the environmental cost of our choices. We've all obviously gone into this field to help people. Doctors and nurses have both taken oaths to do no harm, and I think it's our responsibility to at least consider the fact that the things we do to anesthetize our patients each day do contribute in a real way to a growing global health problem. 
And if there's a safe and effective way to do something differently that contributes less to this problem, I think that falls in line with the ethical principle of non-malfeasance. So we do the same thing with all of our other anesthetic drugs. You just give the patient what they need and only amount that they need it. Because for every medication given, obviously there can be a side effect and it's our responsibility as providers to be constantly analyzing that risk-benefit ratio. So I think in the cases of these anesthetic gases, it is important to consider that they will have effects on global health due to the way that they're eliminated and disposed of. And and what about the folks who are still like, but my wake-ups are just so much quicker with desflurane. What would you say to them? Well, you know, I think that, you know, as advanced practice nurses and as physicians who practice anesthesia, we are extensively trained on how to make these critical choices. And I think that it might require a little bit more thought of how to titrate down your gas, but talk to your colleagues, talk to other people that you interact with in the hospital and ask them how they titrate. There's so many resources out there for ways to reduce your use of certain gases and for ways to kind of titrate down so that you don't have these really long wake-ups. You know, consider switching to Tiva at the end of the case. You know, there's a whole bunch of different ways. You know, we always say in anesthesia that there's a thousand ways to deliver a safe anesthetic. And like you mentioned, a lot of it in training, at least, as I have found, is doing it according to your provider preference. So I think that when you exercise the ability to think about how to do something in advance, you can end up with the same results and might be surprised by that. Yeah, that's excellent. I think, you know, obviously there are a lot of different ways to go about, you know, changing your techniques and, you know, and change is hard for anesthesia providers to think about. It's difficult to change your practice, but I think we've definitely made a compelling case today for people to look at techniques other than relying on desflurane. And, you know, for a long time, my practice was, you know, it was actually a talk like this that someone gave at our institution on the environmental impacts of volatile anesthetics. And they had shared in that talk, you were talking about how long the volatile anesthetics last in the atmosphere, you know, up to 14 years for desflurane. And they uh, framed that uh, nitrous oxide actually can linger up to over a hundred years in the atmosphere. And at that, I, I will tell, I can remember the the morning of grand rounds when I heard that was a threshold moment for me. You know, at that point I was using, I wasn't using desflurane. It wasn't really available in our practice as I've already described, but I was using sevoflurane in, in a mixture of like 70% nitrous and titrating down the sevoflurane to be able to really approach that emergent speed of, of what I was used to with desflurane and, and anesthesia training. And at that point in time, I had to make a decision if I really wanted to, even, even on emergence, continue to use nitrous oxide. And uh, I, I chose not to. I, I figured that there are ways that I could begin to titrate sevoflurane down a little bit earlier in a case you know, maybe have some propofol available if I needed it for a patient that, you know, wakes up a little bit premature or whatever. But I now I'm able to very easily do emergencies with sevoflurane or isoflurane without the use of nitrous oxide. Now, clearly, I'm still a pediatric CRNA. I'll use nitrous oxide to help with mass conductions. And I think, you know, as the World Health Organization says, these are critical medications and we need to use them judiciously. And probably need to be on formulary, at least, you know, obviously nitrous, sevol, and iso. 
but there are, there are ways and there are techniques that we can minimize our use of these agents and really think about it deliberately and carefully as, as you eloquently described, because we are trained to think in that way. And we are trained to not only take care of our patients, but also to think of the wider ramifications of the choices that we make. So it's all great stuff. But um, what else do you want to share with us as we wrap this topic up? So as, as anesthesia providers, we are trained to learn the intricacies of titrating medications carefully to maximize the benefit and minimize the risk. And so I think that, you know, if you do choose to desflurane because it has a clinical benefit for your patient, that is up to your own clinical judgment. I just want to point out that if you do choose to use desflurane, uh, remember that you can drastically reduce your flows compared to some of the other gases that we use. Desflurane has been shown to be both safe and effective at low flows of only half a liter per minute. And this is another way that you can at least minimize the amount of desflurane gas that ends up vented into the atmosphere, where it will continue to trap that heat for an average of 14 years, like we talked about. Additionally, environmental studies have estimated that for each hour of desflurane use, that is the equivalent of driving between 235 and 470 miles in a car. So, wait, wait, 235 to 470 miles in a car for every hour that desflurane is used. That's insane. That's correct. I mean, just think about it, translate that into speed. That's like you're burning gas, you're burning the amount of gas it would take you to drive 235 to 470 miles per hour. That's a lot of gas. That's insane. And you've got figures for SIVO and ISO on that too, right? Yeah, so the, the figures for sevoflurane is about 18 miles, and then for isoflurane, it's between 20 and 40 miles. That's a lot uh, less the gas. Of per hour. That's a lot less gas per hour. Yeah, so, you know, the point of this podcast is just to bring these things up as a reminder to anesthesia providers in hopes that we kind of continue this conversation and do what we can to reduce our profession's environmental impact. Yeah. Well, Jake, I can't thank you enough for bringing this to the audience here with Anesthesia Guidebook. And uh, I do want to say as we wrap this up that, you know, everything we've talked about today, you have expertly cited from the literature. So all the data in terms of GWP figures, mileage figures with cars, all of this is cited in the literature. And we'll post those citations on the website along with the pre and post test surveys. And I just want to thank you again. I really appreciate that you took something that was meaningful and important to you, that you cared a lot about in your anesthesia experience in your career, and you you really made this into your DMP project and are looking to help influence the broader anesthesia community, which is exactly what a DMP project should be about. So I think you've done a great job, and thank you so much for bringing this information to our audience. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful to be here. All right, y'all, you know what to do. Now's your chance to contribute to science and feel great about yourself by going back to the show notes to complete the post survey. It just takes a couple minutes to help us collect great data on the show and make this study very powerful. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.